All right, so let me, let's begin. Um, so last week we, uh, we saw that we discussed the story of Nov, the Gemara. Um, the Gemara wove together, Gemara and Sanhedrin wove together three different, three different stories that are found in the book of Shmuel, uh, two that are found in the book of Shmuel and a chapter from Yeshayahu, famous chapter, Od Hayom Benov Lamod. And essentially what the Gemara was suggesting was that the story of Nov, the story of Nov is the massacre of the priests of Nov by Doeg, the Edomite, who's mentioned in the Sanhedrin as one of the people that has no share in the world to come. But the Gemara, the lengthy Gemara, which weaves the stories together, essentially places the blame for the massacre of Nov at the feet of, uh, of uh, King David, who at that point is not yet King David. He hasn't assumed the kingship. And not only does the Gemara blame him for the massacre, the murder of the priest of Nov, but the Gemara also blames him for, the, for causing Doeg to, uh, to be outside the, uh, the Israelite camp. If, if David hadn't acted in the way he did, namely to attempt to collaborate with the high priest of Nov, and he knew that Doeg was there, Doeg being a chief shepherd of, of Saul, Abir none of this would have happened. And not only that, the Gemara then takes it a step further and says that Saul's own death, together with his three sons, which the Gemara suggests is a punishment for what he did to Nov, that also should be laid at the feet of David. David is not the only one guilty, but he's also responsible for what happened at Nov. A rather remarkable statement, although it does mirror what the Book of Shmuel says when David himself says at the end of that chapter that, um, that I knew that Doeg was there and I am responsible for the death of, uh, of, of your family, of the, of the, of the priests of Nov. So that's what we saw last week. That's the lengthy Bob. We're weaving together the stories in a very interesting way. So I thought it would be appropriate to continue with Nov because the character of David, one of the prominent stories in the Bavli about David, comes up in two Gemarot, in Masechet Yevamot. And the Gemara deals in two different places with, uh, with David. The first one is, you have on your screen is a Mishnah, the context over here, the Mishnah discusses those people who are not, whom, uh, whom, the, uh, who, who, uh, the Jews are not permitted to marry. The famous Mishnah, and the Mishnah says, the Torah says actually, that the Ammoni and, and Moabi and Ammoni, lo yavol bikal Hashem, may not enter literally the congregation of God. And the Mishnah presumes that to mean that there's a prohibition to marry the Ammoni and the, and the, and the, Moab, the Moabite and the Ammonite. You may not marry them. The Mishnah then goes on to say, that's true about uh, Ammonite and Moabite converts, men, are prohibited from entering into the congregation and marrying a woman who was born Jewish. However, their female counterparts, the Moabite women, they are permitted immediately. That's the first part of the Mishnah. And that's what the Torah says, but the Mishnah limits that to the men and permits the, an, an Israelite to marry a uh, Moabite woman. So that's the Mishnah. Now, if we scroll down a bit to the Gemara, let's just scroll down a bit. Gemara starts, how do you know this, the Gemara says. So Gemara says that he quotes a, a verse from Shmuel, chapter 17 of 1 Samuel. Chapter 17 of 1 Samuel is the chapter that tells us the story of David and uh, Goliath. So after the story of, after David kills Goliath and brings about the victory, the book of Shmuel says that when Shaul saw David, uh, 
he said to Avner, who is this boy? Avner. Whose son is this Avner, this young boy? And Avner said, you can scroll down more because we'll read the English and it doesn't line up in the safari, it doesn't line up. So it's much further down. So when Saul saw David go forth and said to Avner, whose son is this youth? Ben Mizahanar. Avner says, I don't know, I cannot tell. So the Gemara continues, this verse is puzzling. Did Saul not really recognize him? Isn't it previously written in the previous chapter that when David was summoned to Saul's house, Saul was disturbed and he had, the evil spirit had possessed him and they sought out somebody who could soothe Saul's spirit and they brought David in who was a musician and he would play music and, and he would soothe the spirit of Saul. So how could it be that Gemara says, isn't it previously written, David came to Saul, stood before him. He loved him greatly, Saul loved David. He became his armor bearer. So he was his arms bearer. What do you mean he doesn't know who he is? Now this question, by the way, how could it be that in chapter 17 that Saul says, who is this boy? And in chapter 16, it describes David as being in Saul's court and Saul loves him. The Gemara is asking a question that all students and all who study the book of Shmuel ask precisely the same question. So different people give different kinds of answers to that, but it is a glaring question when one reads the book of Shmuel. Having said all that, we confine ourselves now to the Babli. So it must be, says the Babli, rather, it must be he was asking about David's father, because it does say, Ben me, Ben me, Hanar, the son of whom is this? So he was inquiring about who is David's father. And then the, the Gemara continues, but Saul didn't recognize David's father, but it's written in regard to Yishai, Jesse, David's father, and the man in the days of Saul was old, he came among men, and Rav, and some say Rabbi Abba said, this refers to Yishai, father of David, who entered with multitudes and left with multitudes. In other words, he was a very famous man, the Gemara says. How could he not know Yishai, such a famous person, right? So therefore, what do you mean, who is this boy? So the Gemara says he wasn't asking that question. Rather, this is what Saul was saying. In, it says, does he come from Peretz or does he come from Zerach? Peretz and Zerach are the two of the twin sons of, of Judah. And Peretz is the, is the, is the great ancestor of, of King David. And Peretz is perceived to be, says the Gemara, the one from whom kingship is going to emerge. The Book of Ruth ends, for example, with the genealogy of Elatoldo's Peretz leading to David. So the Gemara, without proving it, assumes that. Peretz, because he can parade, he, he makes a breach and no one can stop him. If he comes from Peretz, he'll be the king. That was Saul's question. This kid, is he, is he kingly material? He comes from Peretz? Or does he come from Zerah, who's an important person, but he's not gonna be the king? That says the Gemara was Saul's angle over here. Is this young man a potential king? So, so fine. So then the Gemara continues. Um, the Gemara says, why, why was he asking this question in the first place to Abner? So the Gemara continues, because when, when, when David goes out to fight Goliath, Saul offers David Saul's armor. And David puts down the armor. And David says, I can't walk with the armor, it's, I'm not, whatever, and David takes off the armor. But the fact that David put on the armor in the first place suggests that the armor is worthy of David. So the Gemara continues, he says, apparently Saul cleared David with, 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 with madav, madav means his uniform, but madim also, amida is a size. So the, it sounds like David could wear Saul's armor, but it says that Saul was bigger and taller than everybody else, so when Saul saw David wearing his clothing, the Gemara says he thought that maybe thought or feared that maybe David was kingly material. And that was the question, according to the, 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 the Talmudic reading over here. That was his question about David. Who is he means, 
Does he come from potential kingship or not? So let's, let's scroll further down. And then it says, fine. At this point, at this point, Doeg the Edomite said to Saul, Doeg the Edomite, so Doeg, we encountered him last week in the story of Noah. Doeg the Edomite said to Saul, before you inquire as to whether or not he's fit for kingship, inquire as to whether or not he's even fit to enter the congregation. He says, you're asking about Malchus, kingship, but can he even be part of the congregation? Why not? What's the reason? He descends from Ruth the Moabite. So David comes from Ruth, as we read in the book of Ruth. And we know the Moabites, the Torah says, So the, the Bavli, of course, has Doeg raising a kind of halachic question. All, all the characters in the David court in the Bavli often appear as kind of uh, students of the, of the, of the, of the halacha, students of the Talmud. We can reflect at some point as what is the Gemara's program in actually presenting it with this with this improbable scenario. But okay, that's a good question. Well, let's leave that for now. Interesting question. The rabbinization of all of David's people around David. So, so Doeg raises the question. So Abner said to him, Abner is also a, 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 a big scholar. Abner says, we already learned. Abner says that we already learned that uh, there's, there's no problem. Because the Torah says, teaching an Amoni and a Moavi, a man, an Ammonite man, a Moabite man may not enter. But a, but a, but a Moabite woman, a Moabite woman may enter. Basically, Abner says, what are you talking about? It's a mission in Yavamus, that I involve in Bet. It's a Mishnah. She's permissible. Fine. So Doeg said to him, you have this, 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 this discussion between Doeg and Abner, right? In the book of Shmuel, these are two killers, basically. Two, two great, two, Abner's a great warrior, and Doeg is perhaps a warrior. He's a shepherd. He's also a killer. But here they're discussing the mission, basically. Doeg says, what are you talking about? Your, your, your reading of your, your, your drasha is it's not a good drasha. Because according to you, the, the, very, the very same verses in Devarim chapter 23, which forbid the Moabite and the Ammonite, also forbid the Mamzer. What are you going to say to me? Only a male Mamzer is impermissible to marry, but a female Mamzer is fine. So therefore, we have to learn from the from, the, from Smuchim. We see from the context, obviously, that's not right. So Avner has an answer. No, Mamzer is different. Mamzer means it's some kind of defect. That's different. Then Doeg responds later, what about the what about an Egyptian? It says three generations, an Egyptian man may not enter the congregation. An Egyptian woman, is that different? So Abner responds to him. It's, 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 the, the, the morning, it's kind of harusa here. He responds, no, this is different. Because it says, it give, the Torah gives a reason why the Moabite and the Ammonite may not enter the congregation. They did not meet you with bread and water when you came out, out of Egypt. It is the way of a man to go forth to meet guests, but it is not the way of a woman to go forth. She stays home. So therefore the women were not excluded because they weren't guilty of the crime which excludes the Moabite. So Doeg has an answer. He says, what are you talking about? Okay, the women shouldn't go to meet the men, but the women should go to meet the women. Avner was silent. Avner didn't know what to answer. Doeg has a lot of good questions. So so at this point, the king said, at this point, the king said, go, go, go and inquire who this boy is. There in the previous verse, he called David a Nah. But in, this, in, in the second verse that they cite, he calls him an Elam. Now an Elam, an Alma is a young woman. An Elam is a young man. But the Gemara and the Bavli, the rabbis, are extremely sensitive to the language. So they have a drasha on the word elem, ayin lamed mem. Elem means that which is hidden. hit alein means to pretend not to see something. Um, so go, go and see, says. Saul said, 
to him to do it. The halacha elem, the halacha has been hidden from you. Go to the Beit Medrash, go to the study hall, and let's find out what the halacha is. Is this fellow permissible to marry or not? Remember, by the way, in the David Goliath story, when David is circulating around the battlefield, asking a lot of questions, what will happen to the man who slays Goliath? The people say to David, it'll be very important, and the king will offer his daughter to David. So the question about marriage is not unrelated to the Goliath story. In any event, he went to the study hall, the base medrash, where they're all busy learning, and they said to him, an Ammonite man is forbidden, but not, a, but not an Ammonite or a Moabite woman. So they said, Mishnah. They go to Ammon, Abner, Doe goes to the base medrash, maybe Abner goes with him. And they said, Moabib or Moabiyah. Fine. That's the Gemara then continues. The Gemara then says that Doe asked all these questions, but they, and someone stands up, Amasa, who becomes later the general of Abshalom, he stands up and he says, This is the halacha, we have a tradition, Moabib or Moabiyah. Now, I, I, I cite this Gemara here, which is not our main inquiry this evening, but it's important to keep all these things in mind. The Gemara has transformed the court of Saul, in this case, Abner and Doeg, and they bring Amasa in, the general of Afshalom, whom Yov will kill. And all of these personalities in the Babli become great halachic authorities, become serious learners. It's not unique only to the stories about David. We encounter this elsewhere, but I want to park that at this point when in thinking about what is the Bible trying to do over here? What is the Bible thinking? What, what, what is the message over here about all of these people uh, being great scholars and, and going to the Beit Midrash and resolving the problems that way? Certainly when one reads the book of Shmuel, one does not get the sense that these are people deeply involved in the intricacies of, of Jewish law. In fact, one of the problems with the book of Shmuel is that Jewish law seems to be very absent in many of the stories to the degree that it often contradicts what the Torah seems to say. But leave that aside for now. But let's remember this story. So the, the Gemara here is raising the question about David's lineage, about the book of Ruth. How could, how could David descend from Ruth? How is it permissible to marry the, the Moabite woman? It is interesting, by the way, that when you study the book of Ruth, parenthetically, I comment, one does not get the impression in reading the book of Ruth that this halachic problem exists at all. There is, in the sense of book of Ruth, a problem that maybe the people of Israel won't want to marry, won't want to engage with a Moabite woman. She's a foreigner. She's part of the enemy, perhaps. But the sort of halachic issue of being a Moabite woman, in my view, is conspicuously absent from the book of Ruth. There is there's an obstacle to marrying Ruth, but it's not necessarily a halachic obstacle. But that's not our problem right now either. It's a very interesting question. In any event, here we're introduced to David and David's lineage. And Saul was concerned about David's potential to be king. And Doegus said, before he asked questions about kingship, Let's ask questions if the Jewish community can accept this guy altogether. And they debate it, and they have a halacha, they have a tradition that the Moabite woman is acceptable in the congregation. Fine. And now we come to our subject matter for the evening. Before we get there, does anybody have a comment or question about anything that we've seen just now? And then we'll begin our main topic for the evening. Okay. If you don't, you can ask later on if you have questions. Let's, let us begin now with the subject this evening, which, which relates to what we started with last week. So the next text you have in front of you, which is chapter 21 of Shmuel Bet, is a very interesting chapter. And we will uh, just read the chapter now. And then the Gemara, the next Gemara, will be directly related to the story over here. This, this is chapter 21 of Shmuel Bet, which is the first of four chapters, 21, 22, 23, 24, which serve as a kind of epilogue to the book of Shmuel. And these four chapters, 21, 22, 23, 24, 
Last week, we, we saw the second half of chapter 21. That's the story of the, of the giant in, in, uh, in Gulf, uh, who is the, the woman who's the mother of the four giants that is slain by David's strong men. The first of them is called Yishbi Benov. And last week, we saw the Agarita about Yishbi Benov. And David and, and, and his comrade, Abishai ben Tzruya, who saves him, also goes to the base medrash to ask a question, can you ride in the king's horse, the whole story. This is the first part of that chapter, that same chapter. In chapters 21, 22, 23, 24, these four chapters at the very end of Shmuel, in our tradition, 24 is the last chapter of Shmuel. These four chapters have their own internal structure. They have a chiastic structure. A, B, C, C, B, A. A, which is chapter, beginning of chapter 21, that's about a sin of the king. The king has committed a sin, which results in dire punishment for all the people. That's how chapter 21 begins. And chapter 24, which is the last chapter of Samuel, in our tradition, that is about another sin of the king. That's the story of David taking a census. And then the prophet goes to David and the prophet says that God gives David a choice, etc. And there's a terrible plague in chapter 24. In chapter 21, it's about the sin of a king, which results in a famine. So chapter 21 and 24 are chapters that relate to each other. We can call them A. Because in between 21 and 24, we have B, we have C, we have C, and we have B. We have two chapters that deal with the strong men of David, the powerful heroes of David's army. And in between that, we have two different songs. We have the song of chapter 22 and the short song of 23, part A. So it's A, B, C, C, B, A. And they form a, 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 a coda, a conclusion to the book of Shmuel. And because many scholars have seen that we have a ABC CBA structure. So of course that means that these chapters should be read as one unit and we read them together and each chapter informs the other. We compare and contrast, of course. But many scholars jump to the conclusion that because it's a separate integrated piece that it doesn't really bear direct relationship to the rest of Samuel. That in my view is a very bad mistake. It has deep, deep connections to the rest of Samuel. But leave that on the side for the moment. We may touch upon that in the future. Okay, so let's begin now with chapter uh, 21. It begins this way. So there was a famine during the reign of, da of David, three years, one year after the next. David inquires of God. And God replies to David, God said, El on account of Saul and his bloody house, for he killed the Givonim. So this is a punishment, says God to David, who inquires. It's a punishment for what Saul did to the Givonim. And now the chapter continues and says David calls, summons the Givonim, and the, the text says, the Givonim were not from not Israelites. They're, they're the remnant of the MOE who formerly possessed the land. And the Israelites had sworn to them in the book of Yoshua. That's the story where they pretend to come from a faraway land. And because they're afraid of Israel. And Israel took an oath. They swore they weren't going to harm them. Then they discover that they lied. So what do you do? It was an oath taken under false pretenses, but they decide to keep the oath anyway. Since they took an oath, they're going to keep their word. They're not going to kill the Givonim. That's the story in the book of Yoshua. So it says that um, David summons the Givonim because God said to David, on account of Saul and the bloody house, now he killed the Givonim. Killing the Givonim means he violated the oath. So David asked the Givonim, he asked them, what shall I do? And how shall I atone and bless the inheritance of God? Because there's a famine for three years. So what should we do to make to square things, to make things right? David asked the Givonim that question. 
And the Gibbon and the man said, listen, we have no claim for money. And not only that, we have no claim for money, and we have no claim on the life of anybody, anybody else in Israel. That's what we don't want. So David says, so tell me what tell me says, tell me what you want. What, what claim do you have? So they say to the king, this man has, has massacred us. He planned to totally obliterate us. Give us seven people from his children and we will uh, impale them. We will, we will impale them in Givat Shaul, the chosen of God. And the king says, I will, I will give. So David hands over seven of, uh, seven of Saul's descendants. The next verse says that David had pity on Jonathan's son. Now Jonathan's son, David had taken an oath David had sworn to take care of Jonathan's family. So he spares Jonathan's son, whose name is Mephibosheth. He will figure in the future in other stories. But meanwhile, he takes the two sons of Ritzbah Batayah. Ritzbah Batayah was David's, was Saul's concubine. Two sons, one of whom is named Mephibosheth. And it says he took the five sons of Michal, who had born children for Adriel ben Barzillai HaMechalati. Michal was David's wife. And Saul took Michal away from David, handed her over to Adriel. And according to the text over here, there's a contradiction between the text here and the earlier text. But over here it says that Michal had children from another man, five of them. And David hands over her five children to the Gibbonim. It's Meirav. Meirav. It's Meirav. Right. It's Meirav, but over here it's Michal. The, 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 Gemara, the Gemara will ask the question. There's a contradiction mm -hmm. between the story here. Between, earlier it's Meirav. David, uh, haven't, you in, haven't you in the past told us that Meirav and Michal, because their names basically are identical, that in many cases, especially the way the Babali may treat them and certainly the way we're supposed to interpret it, to some extent, story-wise, vis-a-vis David, they're interchangeable. So that may in fact inform why here it's Mirav, here it's Michal, we okay, know it's- Right, I did say that. I, 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 I did say that, I think that's right. But it is interesting that here it's Michal, in any event. Well, it would make sense here too, Rabbi, wouldn't it? Because David cursed her and said, you would not have, you will not have children. And in fact, if she had them with Adriel, whom he then- oh, That is true. So in other words, it wasn't any skin off his nose to uh, do away with her children since it lives up to his prophecy anyhow. Right, but it could be, one could read that prophecy as a prophecy about himself. You'll have, you, uh -huh. he mm -hmm. says, you know, but he has, she has no children means that if, we, if she would have a child with David and that child becomes the king, Mm -hmm. That would unify the kingship of David and the kingship of Saul. David has determined not to do that. I see. So that's yes. a good question. In any event, thank you. He takes these seven children, basically, two of Ritzbah Bataya and five of Michal, hands them over to the Gibbonim who impale them. It says the seven fall together and they die, they're killed, in the beginning of Bitchilat Katsir Sobim, in the beginning of the time, and they impale them on the mountain before the time, the harvest of the, before the barley harvest, okay? Rabbi, now we're told you... about a little story. We're told that Ritzba about Aya yeah. wants to protect the bodies. She takes a sackcloth, spreads it on a rock, and she stays there from the beginning of the harvest until the rain fell from the sky. She did not let the birds of the sky settle on them by day or the wild beasts at night. David is told what, what Ritzvah Baraya does. And then in verse 12, David went and took the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from the citizens of Yavesh Kilad, who had made off with them from Beit Shan, where the Philistines had hung them on the day the Philistines killed Saul at Gilboa. David brings back the bones of Saul and Jonathan. He gathers the bones of those who have been impaled. And he buries the bones of Saul and Yonatan in the territory of Benjamin in the tomb of his father Kish. When all that the king had commanded was done, God responded to the plea of the land thereafter. After he does all this, 
we are told, the famine stops. That's the story, verses 1 through 14, in chapter 21 of 2 Samuel. To say that is a disturbing story is the understatement of the century. But there are actually many questions. And the Gemara says something here, the Babli, as we'll see, says some extremely interesting things about the story. Not only are they interesting, when you think about it, it could actually be the best, the best reading of the story. But before we get to the Bavli. Rabbi, could you talk about the, the idea of one person does something and then other people are punished? I mean, I'm, I'm just about to. Oh, good. Exactly what I'm going to talk about. Okay. That's exactly the theme of tonight and probably next week as well. Thank you. The first problem, when you read the chapter, there are many issues in the chapter. I think that the, the, the genius of the book of Shmuel is never evidenced more than in this particular chapter. The first question when you read the chapter is, it's very strange. It says there was a famine for three consecutive years in the time of David. And David inquires of God, why is this famine happening to the people? And the answer is, because of Saul and the bloody house in that he killed the Givonim. But of course the reader asked the question, if that is true, then why in fact is the famine three years in the time of David? Wouldn't it make more sense to have the famine for three consecutive years in the time of Saul, since the sin is attributed to Saul? That's the first question, right. the obvious question. And there's something else, which, which is a second question one can ask, this is what generates the, uh, the Gemara. There's something very strange about the story. The story segues from the Givonim, handing these seven over to the Givonim. And then there's this business of Ritzvah Bat Aya. And David sees what Ritzvah Bat Aya is doing. And then David goes and retrieves the bodies of Saul and Jonathan. He also buries the ones who had been impaled, who were left not buried all this time. But he goes and retrieves the bones of Saul and Jonathan. So apparently, we discover something very curious about the, the bodies of Saul and Jonathan. That all of this time, we didn't realize this, but since the death of Saul, which is 20 chapters earlier, at the end of what's Shmuel Aleph, apparently, and the Philistines stole the body of Saul and hanged it on the wall of Bethshan. And the people of Yavesh Gilad walked all night and retrieved the body. It says they burnt it, burnt the body. And apparently for all of this time, who knows how many years, it's been a long time, the bodies of Saul and Jonathan are in Yavesh Gilad. Yavesh Gilad is on the other side of the Jordan. Now we know that in the Bible in general, being buried in the family plot is a big thing. And it's very strange why all these years were the bodies of Saul and, and Jonathan, David's great friend, not retrieved? That's the second question. What do we make of that? And finally, there's another question, which is about the famine. One would expect to read that David inquired of God and it's an account of Saul and his bloody house. The house bears some guilt. And then David goes to the Gibbonim, what, what do you want me to do? And the Gibbonim say, listen, we want retribution. Give us members of Saul's house. And David does that. And we expect to read, it should say, and David gave them to the Gibbonim and the famine stopped. Because after all, it says that the crime was solved in the bloody house. And if we presume that handing over the, the house of Saul to the Givonim is appropriate, whatever we may think of it, but the text may see it as appropriate, then you would expect that the famine would, would in fact stop because the, the price has been paid. Retribution has been, has been made, even though it can't be full retribution, it doesn't bring back the people that were massacred, but okay. But that's the kind of kapara, you know what I mean? It's, it's atonement. But that's not what it says in the story. Only in the last verse of the story does it say that God relented, the famine stopped. And it seems to connect it to the fact that Saul and Jonathan have been buried. 
So how do we understand that in, in, the, in the story? Those are three, I think, obvious questions to ask. And then there's another question, which is more of a literary question. And that is, what is the function in this story of Ritzba Bat Aya? Now, stories have, stories, great stories usually have someone who stands out, not always, but sometimes it's somebody who stands out in the stories, a kind of hero. And if there is a hero in chapter 21, it would appear to be this woman, Ritzbo Bat Aya. What is the place of Ritzbo Bat Aya here? Ritzbo Bat Aya was the concubine. She's mentioned earlier in the book of Shmuel. Now we're not studying the book of Shmuel here. It's not a bad thing to do, but the point is in the story, what is the function of this Ritzbo Bat Aya in the story? So these are simply questions when you read, there are many other questions too. And this is the story that we have before us. And this is the story that the Bavli had before it. The same, the same story. And the Bavli begins with the following question. Let me just, I, I don't have a, a watch with me. How much, what, what, what time is it now? Uh, it is about 8.40. Okay, good. So we have 20 minutes now. So, okay, let's, let's get down to the Gemara now. This is, uh, we'll start it this week. Uh, you want to scroll down to the next Gemara. It should be Ayin Chet or Ayin Zayin or Ibeth. Let's see, there it is, right there. All right, so Gemara, let's see. Okay, so the Gemara starts like this. I'll read the English here. So, so the Gemara starts with the Givonim. Now, the, the Givonim in the Gemara, by the way, in the Mishnah or the Talmud, the term the Talmud uses for the Givonim is the Nitinim. Nitinim. That's the Talmudic term for the Gibbonim, the Nitinim, who are understood to be the remnants of the seven nations that one possess, once possessed the land. The text we had before us said they are Mieter Emori, a remnant of the Amorites. That means they're Canaanites, basically, the seven nations that once inhabited the land. They are the, the remnant of those Canaanites. So the, the uh, Rav Chana Barada said, concerning the Gibbonim, David decreed they may not enter the congregation. Said, and the king called the Gibbonites and said to them, the Gibbonites are not of the children of Israel. So this means that the Gemara thinks this would suggest that David made a decree against the Gibbonim. So the, the Gemara, skip a couple of lines, the Gemara asks, what is the reason? Why did David decree against them? And the Gemara then quotes the story that we just read in the book of Shmuel. There was a famine three years, year after year. So year after year. So the Gemara says in the first year, David said to the Jewish people, perhaps there are idol worshipers amongst you. That's a sin that can lead to drought, etc." That's the verse in, uh, in, 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 in the Shema, right? And David checks, right? He read me more, right? So, but they, they checked it out. David thought maybe the reason for the famine is that the people were worshiping idols, idolatry. You can scroll up, keep going. So, right. They examined the matter, did not find sinners. In the second year of the drought, said so maybe there's uh, sexual crimes, transgressions. And they checked this out as well. And it doesn't seem to be the case. They go the third year. Perhaps there are people amongst you who pledge money to charity in public, but don't give it. <laughs> People that make public commitments, but don't fulfill the commitments. It also can lead in a lack of rain as a, as a, as a, as a sin, as a, as, a, as a punishment. Fine. So again, that's not, that's not what it is. Having, not having, so David says, So, it, so apparently David says, it's not that the people have sinned, the matter depends on nobody other than myself. And that actually is an ambiguous statement that it depends only on myself. What it could mean is, it's not something that is obvious in terms of what the people have done. I have to seek it out. So David seeks out God. David inquires of the Urim Betumim and we can scroll down some more. David sort us, keep going. David, David seeks out God. Keep going, fine, we can skip all this, fine. 
And then the Lord said, this is the answer. It is for Saul, al Shaul, the Albeit Adamim, al Asher Haragat Agibonim. That's what the verse is. Now the Bavli says, for Saul, al Shaul, which means Shalonuspad Kalacha. The punishment is meted out for, for Saul means because of your behavior towards Saul. That's, that's the Agadic interpretation. Mm. On account of Saul, who was not eulogized properly. You didn't give Saul the proper funeral and for his bloody house because he killed the Gibbonim. The Gemara says, has a couple of questions. But the first question is, where do we find that Shaul killed the Gibbonim? The Gemara says, we read the book of Shmuel and this episode of Saul killing the Gibbonim We've never seen such a thing. In nowhere in the book of Shmuel does it suggest that Saul killed the Gibbonim. Says the Gemara. Saul didn't actually kill the Gibbonim, but he killed the priests of Nob, the city of priests who would provide the Gibbonim with water and food in exchange for their services. And therefore, the verse ascribes to him as if he himself had killed them. Now let's stop here for a minute and just reflect on this statement. What the Gemara has done here actually is it has tied in the story of Nov <laughs> to the story of the Gibbonim. That's what it's done. And when you think about it, the Gemara is saying, look, we, there's certainly no evidence in the rest of the book of Shmuel that Saul killed the Gibbonim, but we do know that Saul massacred other people. He massacres the priests of Noah. So the Gemara then makes this jump and says, well, he didn't really kill the Gibbonim in the first place. It's the massacre of Noah that's being alluded to over here. But when you kill the priests of Noah, the Gibbonim were depending for their sustenance on the, the Gibbonim work together with the priestly city. They would give the, get their food from the priestly city, they would work for them. So in killing the priests of Nov, the effect of killing the priests of Nov is in fact to kill the Gibbonim. Now, our interest here is not whether that's the, the shot in the, in, the, in, in, this, in the literal sense. But what is interesting over here is that the Gemara, one might say the Gemara's agenda, once again, is to look at the story of Nov as a story which has enormous significance beyond itself. And the idea that when you do something, and especially if you are the king, these, what you do has all kinds of consequences for which you have to assume responsibility. And now I wanna make my own leap over here and make the following suggestion, which one can easily disagree with, but I'll make it anyway, and that's the following. I wanna suggest for our purposes that the Agatha that we read last week in Sanhedrin about Nov, and the Agalata in Yevamot about Nov should be read together. And if you read them together, because over here, what the, what the Bavli seems to be saying is that Saul is guilty. Saul, King Saul, the crime he committed as, as king against Nov had implications for Givon as well. And that's the text over here. He's guilty also for the Givon name. He did massacre a, a city. But it wasn't the give on name, but by, by, by extension, it's the give on name. But if we think about what we saw last week, where the Gemara says that the one who can be held responsible for the murder of the priest of Nov and for the disenfranchisement of Doe, and in fact, for the death of Saul and his children, is none other than David himself. And David basically said it David said, I am, I, I am a cause not that he's the sole cause, but a cause, then what's interesting is if you read these two state Talmud together, then, then we come to the conclusion, if you read the Gemara in Yuvamot in the light of the Gemara in Sanhedrin, then we, read the, then we come to the conclusion that what's happening in this chapter of Shmuel in terms of the Givonim, that actually 
what the Talmud is suggesting by means of the Gemara in Sanhedrin is that in thinking about the guilt of Saul in this chapter, we should not only be thinking about the guilt of Saul, we should be thinking about the guilt of Saul and David. And this course is about David, not about Saul. And when you think about that, actually, things begin to make some sense. I'm not talking about the Agana, I'm talking about the text itself. Because the first question anybody asks in reading the chapter is, why is there a famine for three years in the time of David if the, if the crime was committed by Saul? And the Bavi provides its answer in its context, but I think it's actually true in the context of the Book of Shmuel, which is that actually the one who has to bear the guilt for Saul's crime is not only Saul, because it was a crime committed by, by, by the king. So if anybody is going to be held accountable for the crime of the king, it should be the next king. And point of fact, um, the Bavli may even be hinting at that because the first three years, the Bavli has David going to the people and trying to find blame in them. And then after three years, he says, I guess it's all up to me. Now, up to me can mean up to me to figure it out. And if it falls on me, and maybe the reason it falls on David, given the Bavli's thinking, is precisely because what the story's really about is about the story of Noah, the massacre of Noah. And if that be the case, then David has to be a responsibility for that. And actually, that would explain something else in this in this in, in, in the story, which is what the Gemara said, David inquired of God. And according to the Bavli, and God answered David, concerning Saul and the bloody house. So the plain meaning is Saul and his bloody house. But the reading that we encounter in the Talmud is very different. On account of Saul means on account of the fact that Saul was not eulogized properly. He wasn't eulogized properly. He wasn't mourned properly. And that Saul murdered the Gibonim, to which the Gemara asks, Gemara says, let's, what does the Gemara say? Um, Gemara questions this understanding. On one hand, God demands retribution because Saul was not eulogized properly. On the other hand, God demands retribution because Saul himself put to death the Gibonim. Isn't that a contradiction? You're guilty of two things. Not treating this man with the ultimate respect, and B, not punishing his house because he's a cold-blooded killer. Isn't that a contradiction, the Gemara says? Answers the Gemara, yes, this is how it should be. Because we quote Reish Lakish, when mention is made of justice to be carried out, his good deed should be mentioned as well. Okay. David says, as far as the eulogy, 12 months have passed. And it's not appropriate to eulogize somebody after 12 months. As far as the Gibonim, let's deal with that. So let me just make one comment here and I'll take questions. We're gonna to have to continue this next week, but let me just make the following point. The Gemara says, Saul was not eulogized properly. Now, what is very interesting is, was Saul eulogized at all? Yeah. Was he eulogized at all? Was Saul eulogized? Yeah. David, David has a whole uh, big mismar about that at the end, doesn't he? I would admit it. It's probably the most famous eulogy in the entire Bible. What do you mean? How yeah. have the mighty fallen? <laughs> There's no more famous eulogy than David's eulogy for Saul. He is eulogized. It's one of the glorious eulogies that we have. How have the mighty fallen? Right? Oh, daughters of Israel, mourn for Saul. He brought you jewelry. I mean, it's very famous, but it's on this side, Kalacha. The Gemara doesn't say he wasn't eulogized. He wasn't mm -hmm. eulogized properly. He wasn't actually, he wasn't given the credit for what he did. And what he did was to unify the Jewish people. He created a state at Saul with all his imperfections. So if you say you didn't eulogize him properly, Okay, to whom would that critique be directed if not for the one who did eulogize it? You have a beautiful eulogy, 
but it wasn't Nisbat Kalacha. And David says, it's too late to correct that. I can't, it's past 12 months. I can't correct that piece of it, but I'm going to correct the other piece of it. So the point over here is that what this Agatha is getting us to think about is whether the critique leveled against Saul in chapter 21 is a critique leveled only against Saul, or is it a critique leveled against David? And let me make just uh, two points about David, because our topic is David, and the way the Bible wants us to see David. And what's interesting is, El Shaul v'yobet ha'damim, Saul and his bloody house. And what is, what is the crime? First of all, he's described as Saul and the bloody house, Beit Adamim. And what is Saul's, what is the heinous crime of Saul in this chapter? Why is such a terrible crime that there's a famine for year after year? How does the text of Samuel present the crime? What's the emphasis about the crime? This is why it's the epilogue to the book. <clears throat> what is the great crime over here? He killed the Gibbonim, it says, in his zealousness for Israel. Okay, he even presents that in a positive light in some way. The crime is something else. The main crime of chapter 21 is not the murder of the Gibbonim. The main crime in chapter 21 is breaking the oath. That's the point, the oath. The Israelites had sworn to them. The word for oath is a shvua. And the retribution is to take the sons of Saul and to kill them. How many sons? Shiva, seven. So the text plays with Shiva and Shua, which it does in many places, by the way. We just read it recently. Be'er Sheva, Kisham Nishbu'u Shnehem. The place was called Be'er Sheva, the seven well of seven, for there they took an oath. So Sheva and Shua are related. The point of the, the, the sin of Saul is a sin of violating the oath. Oath means in the imposition of God's name, of not obeying, not keeping something you took in God's name for the purpose of carrying out what you believe to be your role as, as the king of Israel. And that's a crime because the king has to always remember the king serves God. God always comes first. It's the ultimate crime in the book of Samuel. So that's a crime. You gotta keep your oaths. And the second point is, he's called Saul and Beit Adamim, the bloody house. Fine. Now, since we're discussing and the topic is David, I just want to reflect for a moment upon what the Bible might be picking up about David, the hero of the book of Samuel. By hero, I mean the main character of the book of Samuel and the hero of many parts of the Bible and the hero if a flawed one of the Bible, but he's quite flawed. The David of Samuel is a flawed character. The David of Psalms is not a flawed character. The David of Chronicles is not a flawed character. But the David of Samuel is a flawed character. And one of the things that David, uh, one of the problems we encounter when we read the book of Samuel about David is that what David does not do very well is keep his oaths. David takes oaths on several occasions in the book of Shmuel. He swore to Jonathan to protect his family. He swore to Saul to protect his family. He swore to Shimi ben Gera, he's not gonna kill him. He has other oaths as well. And the fact of the matter is that when you look at the oaths that David takes in the book of Samuel, we can't really say, I think, that he fully fulfills them. From a technical standpoint, standpoint, you might say he fulfills that. He swears he's not going to kill Shimi ben Gera. Swears to it. But when David lies dying in the second chapter of, or first chapter of Malachim, he instructs his son Shlomo, he says, I swore I wouldn't kill him, but you're a smart guy, you'll figure out a way. So the keeping of the oaths, did he keep his oath to Jonathan to protect Jonathan's family? Yes and no. Technically speaking, he doesn't hand over Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. Did he treat Mephibosheth properly? The Talmud Bavli doesn't think so. And we'll get to that. 
The Bible sees the way David treats Mephibosheth as David's greatest crime, worse than Bathsheba, and cause for the kingdom to be divided after David's death. So my point is, the indictment against Saul can be read also as an indictment against David even before you get to the Bible. And by the way, Saul and the bloody house, the bloody house of Saul. But in the book of Samuel, Saul is not called the bloody man in the book of Samuel. But who, who is called the bloody man in the book of Samuel? Only David, one person is called David, the bloody man. David. David. When David is running away from his son Absalom, and Shimi ben Gera meets him on the way out of Jerusalem. You wicked, bloody man, leave, leave. You're being exiled because of your wickedness. For you are a bloody man. And I would add here, before I take the, any questions or comments, that there's something else very curious about 2 Samuel chapter 21. Because 2 Samuel chapter 21 is ostensibly, and not just ostensibly, is about the sin of the king. The king in question is Saul. But what's interesting is, that's the first story in this little coda, A, B, C, C, B, A. B is David's strongman, C is David's first song, C prime is David's second song, B prime is more strongman, and C prime is David's sin in counting the people. The next five episodes in the structure are all about David. And therefore, it is certainly uh, appropriate or certainly possible to make the argument that even the first story, which takes place in David's kingship for a very good reason, because it can't be divorced from David himself. The indictment leveled against Saul, which is, which is accurate, but it's also an indictment about David. And the problem will not be solved until David treats Saul appropriately. By not treating Saul appropriately, it's a way of saying it's all Saul's fault. But of course, the point of the story and the point of the Bavli is that it's also David's fault. And here we come back to Noah because the Bavli has intentionally, I think, connected the story of the Givonim to the story of Noah. And if we presume that the two Agadot are working in sync, then we have to take the next step and presume, well, if the Bavli in Sanhedrin sees David as one of the responsible part, people are no, Saul maybe bear the main responsibility, but so David's also guilty. Then over here too, we can legitimately say that what the Bavli has in mind is that it's not just Saul. But once you connect it to Nov, it underscores the potential reading to see David also as complicit in this crime. And point of fact, for three years, he does nothing about it. And he's the person who could do something about it. Not only that, he's the king. So if anybody bears responsibility for a crime someone else committed, it makes a lot more sense to take a person who's in that same position who has done nothing and to put the blame on him than it does to blame the grandchildren of Saul. So we'll pick this up next week. Let me, are there any comments or questions of what we've done so far? And then we'll stop here and next week we'll continue uh, with this Agadah and another Agadah that I wanted to look at in uh, Sanhedrin. And then I would like to look at some of the Agadot that see David in a very favorable light, although it's always nuanced, but I think see David in my view, in a quite favorable light and cast a very important lens upon David. Guess this is to see David a certain way, which is what, what's interesting about the Bavli and how the Bavli is reading. Okay, so I'll stop here at this point. Are there comments or questions? Uh, but aren't we also told that the reason that David doesn't get to build the Beit HaMikdash is because of the blood on his hands? Is that right, so the Right, so the... The Book of Shemuel never actually says that directly. I have my own reading which suggests that, that the Book of Shemuel suggests such a thing. That's never explicit in the Book of Shemuel. In the Book of Chronicles in Divrei Hayamim, there we have, we don't have God saying that to David. We have David reporting 
what God said to him, why David couldn't build it. But one could make the argument, I think that uh, the, the general, the, the killer or whatever, even where the killing is justified, but the temple being a place of peace, that that's not the appropriate, the, the person to build the temple is one who's a, a peaceful person, peace in his time or whatever. And David has a different mission in life. So I'm not sure that we should see that necessarily as, it could be, it could be a, a, a critique of David, or it could be that what David is saying is that wasn't my role in life. People have different tasks in life. My task was to defend the Jewish people, which is what God says. I, 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 chapter seven of Second Samuel, I, I made you the king so that the enemies of Israel can't, can't, can't mistreat the people. And that, that's your job. And David is a ruthless defender of the Jewish people. Um, but you're right that in the book of Chronicles, David reports that the fact that he has blood on his hands, but the, the point of the blood is well taken. Yes, you, you have shed a lot of blood. That's what David says. So you that point is it's an excellent point in terms of it, 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 it references the blood, being the Ishtamim as it were. So there, it may be in a more positive context. Okay, so... Uh, Last chance for today. If anybody has questions, you can email me, dsilveratrisha.org, and I'll try to respond to any questions. The plan is next week to just finish up the story here, um, and then to uh, look at a fascinating uh, Gemara in Sanhedrin, a different place in Sanhedrin. It's terrific. And uh, then we'll move to a, a Gemara in Sechet Psachim and Brachot about David. Okay, so thank you very much and uh, look forward to meeting you again next week. Remember, if you have any questions, you can send me an email. Thank you very much and good evening. Good